Or why is it that so many bad things happen to good people? We've all read that one, right? So we have two choices when it comes to these difficult questions. One, we can let the truth about God and His Word lead us to the answers to these questions. Or, we can let these questions lead us to presumptuous conclusions about who God is. So, we can start with our own thoughts, or we can start with the truth as God reveals it. So, Michael, my good friend, will be reading our scriptures tonight. And so, if you can give a hand for Michael. He's going to read Psalm chapter 34, verses 4 through 10. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and weary and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Thank you so much, Michael. That's awesome. Now, if you don't know much about the book of Psalms, uh, the person who wrote most of them, if not... Uh, well, it wasn't all of them, but most of them, although not all, was King David, one of the best kings that Israel ever had. And this psalm in particular was written by David before he was king, at one of the absolute low points of his life. Um, David was anointed by one of God's prophets to be king of Israel, God's chosen nation, when he was very young. And uh, since then, God had promoted him from simply being a shepherd uh, in his family's fields to being a servant uh, and musician for King Saul in the palace. Now at this point in David's life, Saul had become jealous of him and was trying to kill him. And so David wrote this poem while he was on the run for his life, not only from his own country, but also from other kings. So he's living in a cave, literally a cave, alone away from his family and his friends, So if David ever had a difficult season in his life, this was it so far. It gets worse, actually, but... And chances are that you at some point will also have a very difficult season in your life. And for some of you, that difficult season might even be right now. Even though David was having the worst time of his life, this resulting song is one of the clearest passages in the whole Bible my opinion, for revealing the part of God's character that we call his goodness. Now, how is it that David can express such confidence in God? Tonight, we're going to look and see what it is that gave David such confidence at such a difficult time in his life, and how we can actually have this confidence, too. Taste and see that the Lord is good, David says. In this song, David makes a claim that the Lord is good. Now, what does that mean? Um, Like Shannon was talking about last week, two people can at times have very different ideas about what the same word means, and it can cause a lot of confusion. For example, Shannon talked about how 
her idea of vacation is very different than Anthony's idea of vacation. Um, for some of us, on my way means one thing. And to others, <laughs> Taylor, <laughs> it means something totally different. A lot of people text on my way, and that means they're literally in the car on their way to see the person that they're going to see. And for other people, it means I'm on my way to being on my way. <laughs> or even, I'm on my way to get ready to be on my way to be on my way. <laughs> it's accordingly based on who your friends are. Over time, you learn which friends, when they say on my way, you have 15 more minutes to do whatever you're doing. And which friends you're like, oh gosh, I better put everything away. They're, they're like outside. <laughs> and so, I'm not gonna lie though, I tend to lean sometimes toward the on my way to being on my way friend. So, uh, it's okay too, we're all there. We have different ideas about what certain things mean based on our prior experiences. And the same thing applies to this word, goodness. What does it mean for someone or something to be good? We use the word good when we talk about our favorite bands or our favorite TV shows, saying that's a good show, referring to our own personal preferences. We use the word good when we talk about a paper that our friend wrote, though we all know that there were probably some good things about it, and there were probably also some things that could have been a lot better. But the words that the Bible uses to say that God is good does not mean that God is good or simply better than someone or something else. It doesn't mean that God is good um, and just matches our personal preferences and desires for what we think he should be like. When the Bible calls God good, it means that God is rich or valuable in estimation and that he is beautiful by reason of purity and heart. We understand when we call a person good that they are good sometimes. We know that they have parts of them that are beautiful and richly valuable. But I also know when I look at myself that there are parts of me that are not at all valuable. And quite frankly, parts of myself that I would be better off without. We also know that when we call someone good, they will sometimes be more like their good selves. And at other times, we come to expect that they will not be as good of a family member or a friend or a boyfriend or girlfriend as we would hope for or even as good as they could be. But God is entirely different from that. God is essentially entirely good. According to the Bible, there's never been a time in all of human history where God was anything less than exactly as he is right now. And there will never be a time in the future where he is anything less than perfectly, spotlessly beautiful and pure. Every day, God will always be constantly, unchangingly valuable because of who he is. And that's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? So, the constancy of God's goodness is so perfect that I could not compare it to any person or I would do injustice to the God of the Bible. So, let me try to make another analogy. Imagine the sun. We know that the sun, for as long as the earth has existed, has been producing the most intense heat and light that we can conceive of in our solar system. And it has done so fairly consistently 
enough to make the place where we live inhabitable for all living things since the beginning of time. We know that the sun is as close to perfectly constant as we can think of. And so that's why the Bible says in the book of Hosea, as surely as the sun will rise, you, Lord, will come to us. Yet the sun is among the smallest of stars, and we know now that even the temperature of the sun fluctuates, it changes a little bit. And one day, the sun will implode, and there will be no more light and no more heat from it, just like all the other stars in the universe. But God, who made the sun, along with all the other bigger stars, is even more unchanging than that. Just like the light and heat we have in our world depends on our proximity and location in relation to the sun, our experience of goodness depends on our relationship with God. God is so good that just by creating the universe, His goodness flows into everything we experience and see, reflecting His own glory. Psalms also says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. The Bible shows us that God is intrinsically valuable, valuable in Himself. He is so good that it's worth giving up everything we have to get to know Him. God has never and will never have any evil thought or have any evil intention in his heart towards anyone at any time ever. God promises that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. So think of the most wonderful, pure, loving, gracious, pleasant, funny, and intensely beautiful person you've ever met in your life. Now, if you can, try to imagine with me every good and beautiful thing and pleasant thing that you've ever seen in them or seen them do, either to you or to someone else, and try to separate that from any bad or mean or hurtful thing they've ever said or done. And now imagine that those things had never happened. Imagine that they could not do such things because they would never want to, because that's who they are. Now you have just a little glimpse of a fraction of what the goodness of God is like. If you ever saw really who God was, you would see how beautiful He is in the purity of His heart. And you would be so astonished that you would never again want to look at anything else in the whole world. That is why we say God has a right on our lives because of who He is. There is no one in the whole world who is so intrinsically, absolutely, essentially, constantly good. Who would not trust someone like this with the whole and with the details of their lives when you know He's always going to be good in this way? But when you think and speak of the goodness of God, it does bring up some of the big questions that I mentioned earlier. Some of you may be thinking, if God is so good, then why do bad things happen to good people? Why do so many people want to be good? It seems as if they really can't, like it feels like that. How could a good God send people to hell? Now I want to remind you, once again, we have two options when it comes to these questions. We can let the truth about God in His Word lead us to the answers to our questions, or 
we can let these questions lead us to presumptuous conclusions about God. We can either start with our own thoughts or we can start with the truth as God reveals it. One of my favorite authors, F.W. Moore, likes to write short stories. They're short, fun, and interesting, and usually he has a very good point to make at the end of them. Now, in one short story called Landlord and Tenant, Borum tells about how this family lived in a nice country house and they raised their kids there and ran a farm on that land. Now this family kept their chickens in the basement and one day during flood season when this family was on vacation, the river overflowed into the basement and drowned all the chickens. Now, someone just laugh. <laughs> Chicken hater. <laughs> now, the family had a couple of options. They could move out, blame the landlord, and they could try to find a better place to live. They, surely they would be within their rights to do so, but is it really the best option? How can they say with certainty that it was really the landlord's fault? And how can they guarantee that the river by the next house will also ruin? or that next time it won't be a fire or an earthquake instead. The other option, Borum says, and the better one in my opinion, would be to just try ducks. <laughs> See, many times in life, the river will overflow. Things will happen that you just can't explain or even begin to understand. And the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust. But where does evil in the world come from? Can we really be sure it's the landlord's fault? While we see many bad things happen in the world, never once in the Bible can you find God doing any truly bad thing. But many, many times, you can see even the best of people in the Bible doing horrible, dreadfully evil things. You might say, but didn't God send us a flood to destroy the whole world and rain down fire on cities and command people to go to wars? And we will talk about some of these questions in the coming weeks, but before we dive into all of those questions, can I ask you to ask yourself something first? Am I willing to judge myself with the same scrutiny by which I judge God? Hmm. What many people attempt to do is to justify their own thoughts and actions at any cost, yeah. while writing off God's intentions as bad before they even look to understand His heart or understand what He says about Himself and why He does the things that He does. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are not the best judges of moral character. Hmm. The Bible says in Jeremiah that the human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, I would be willing to wager that every person in this room has either heard someone say this or has said it themselves, I am a good person. But let me ask you something. What tells you that you're a good person? Is it your heart? What if your heart is deceitful and wicked? You know, can you trust what your heart tells you when often your heart tells you to do things that you know are bad for you and for everyone else around you. Yeah. We're told 
seven times just in the first chapter of the Bible that everything God made was very good. And it wasn't until people were in the world that we see evil image. And we know they had a choice in the matter. I'm not surprised when the Bible tells me that people are evil. Though they were meant to be good. Because even in my own heart, I know that in a moment I can think even the most dreadful, shameful things. If the Lord doesn't help me. The heart is deceitful and wicked. And we are so evil sometimes that we can't even tell what is good anymore. Isaiah the prophet told the people of Israel, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. One thing that's scary about people is that when we start to do something we know is wrong, before long, we begin to question if it's even wrong anymore. In our world, we've gotten confused about what is true. And as a society, we can hardly tell which way is up anymore. Just listen to a crime podcast for about 10 minutes, and you'll see how evil people can be. Did you know that all over the world, every day, people are kidnapping, abusing, and even selling women? And some of these women are just never found. Did you know that in some major cities like New York, there's a murder as often as 28 times per day? And that's horrible, right? But Jesus said that when you look at a woman or a man in lust, you're just like those kidnappers in your heart. And when you hate someone in your heart, you're just like those murderers. And this is tough, but it's true. And the only difference between us and them is they have accepted these things in their mind and in their heart to the point that they're willing to act on them. When the mother of one of the 12-year-old Columbine shooters who killed 12 students and a teacher, wounding 21 others, was interviewed, this woman had no idea that her son was thinking about doing these things or that he was even suicidal. She was dumbfounded to find out that though she truly loved her son and cared a lot, that he'd been thinking and planning these things for two years. He was 10 years old. Truly, People are capable of such evil that it's often unfathomable to even try to grapple with the horrible things that people do sometimes. But when we look at our own hearts, there are even within seemingly good people the thoughts of and urges to do things that we would never even say out loud. Yeah. God, only five chapters after he made the world and called it good, tells us through Moses that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And then it goes on to say that he looked on his creation that he loved, he regretted that he had made people on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. And the word that it uses for evil here it, it tells us that people have the propensity to be outrageously, disappointingly evil. And as I mentioned earlier, the often asked question, why do bad things happen to good people? Jesus told us plainly, no one is good. There's not one, but God alone. So the better question is, 
Why do good things happen to bad people? And the ultimate bad thing happened to the ultimate good person. When Jesus, who was perfectly good, who never had an evil thought, who never did a bad thing, took on all the evil and the whole world upon himself as a curse so that he could forgive and change the whole world from evil to good. Isn't that good news? Yeah. God lets us choose how we want to live, but we see the goodness of God and that he is both outraged and deeply moved and grieved over the evil of the world. God is so good that when we are evil and we don't even see it, God responds as he did in Jeremiah, it never even crossed my mind that you would do such horrible things. In fact, I believe that the flood that cleared the earth was really God's tears over the people who rejected him over and over and over again. After 120 years of daily warnings, see, we simply don't have the capacity with our foggy, mud-stained glasses to judge God rightly. How can we when this is the lens that we have to see through? The first step to seeing God as He really is, is admitting that you need Him to show you. And then committing to believing whatever it is that He says about Himself. In our text for tonight, David says, This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. Do you realize that you're in trouble? And that you're poor? Because that's what it takes to see God rightly. God shows himself to those who know they need him and those who really want to see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And later, I sought the Lord and he answered me. David was showing us that the goodness of God can not only be studied and learned about, but that it must be experienced. God invites us to use our senses to experience Him. He says to taste Him and to see Him. Who are we that we get to experience God? That God allows us to get close enough to be with Him, though we're so unlike Him. But you have to be willing to seek Him and call on Him. You can't know the purity of a person's heart by sitting back and watching them from a distance. You have to approach them. You have to talk to them and spend time with them and get to know them in order to have an accurate assessment of who they are as a person. God gives us ways to directly come to Him. So talk to God. Tell Him your thoughts and feelings and ask Him to speak back to you. It's that simple. And we must taste Him. I'm on a diet, and so this really speaks to me. Imagine the biggest, most delicious feast that you can picture, but imagine that you can never be too full. In fact, all the food is only good for you, so it's not bad if you eat a lot. And the more you eat, the hungrier you get. This is what it's like to experience God and to taste Him for yourself by talking to Him and reading His Word. Read the Word, read the Bible, and taste it, and see for yourself this good God who met this woman named Hagar, 
a poor slave woman in the wilderness when she was all alone and her baby was starving to death. And he said, I see you. I am the God who sees, and I'm going to make your son into a great nation. I'm not going to let him die. Taste and see this good God who heard the cries of two million slaves in Egypt and led them out of captivity and brought them to a land that was good for them. Taste and see this good God who rescued men from fires and from armies, from lions, from plagues, from famines, and from themselves. Taste and see the goodness of Jesus who stood on the hill looking at the city and wept for his people because he said that they were like sheep without a shepherd and they needed someone to look after them. But in order to taste him, in order to see him, in order to hear him respond, you must be willing to try him, to look for him, to call out to him. You can only trust God to the extent that you know him. And you can only know God to the extent that you want to know him. The truth is, you can have as little or as much of God as you want. Yeah. And that's wonderful, but also scary, right? He'll give us what we want. But you must know that you're poor and that you're in trouble. You must see that without Him, you are naked and blind, and you are desperate for help. Michael Floyd said it wonderfully to me this week earlier, that it's hard to reach people in our culture because they don't need anything. Though you have your physical needs met more than most people in the world, what about the needs in your heart? Deep down, you know you need God. And sometimes things happen in our lives that make us more aware of this. We know that we are poor and desperate for help when tragedy strikes, or when someone dies, or when we can't take care of things ourselves. John Mark McMillan said it beautifully, I have no answers for heartbreaks or cancers, but a Savior who suffers them with me. But could it be that some of these horrible things in life are allowed to happen to force us to look for and to call out to the one who can actually make sense of them? To look to someone who has our best interest at heart, always aware that we can never use about ourselves, David cried out to God and trusted in his goodness by experience. And he did so in the worst, darkest, most bitter moment in his life so far. Charles Spurgeon says, They that seek the Lord shall be denied no good thing. No good thing shall be denied to those whose first and only aim is to seek the Lord. Many men may call them fools, but the Lord will prove them wise. They shall win when the world's wise lose their all, and the Lord shall have the glory of it all. We have the opportunity to see God clearly when we encounter evil in the world, because these tragedies show us, by standing next to Him, just how bright, brilliant, and pure, and beautiful God really is. Our experience of goodness depends on our relationship with Him. Come close to the sun, and you will feel his warmth. When I was a freshman in college, I found myself asking the question, why, when my 16-year-old cousin passed away from a seizure. Her life was full of injustice. My aunt had done drugs while she was pregnant, 
and my cousin had epilepsy and scoliosis her whole life, and she was unable to use her right hand, and she was never supposed to be able to walk or read or ride a bike, but she did all these things, and she even made it to high school. And I was at first upset when she passed because it seemed so unfair that she should suffer like this all of her life. But then the Lord reminded me about her life. And all these memories of her unfolded. And I remembered how joyful she was and how she never complained. She's always smiling, joking, always ready to come give you a big hug. And I remember the trips that we went on together and the holidays. And I was like, you know what? It makes sense. Isn't it better to let her live and experience the joys of life along with its sorrows? And who knows what her life would have been like if she lived on Would it have been better? There's no way for me to know. But now, she's in perfect joy, completely healed and restored before God, who she knew and loved and trusted, and who's always loved her with a perfect love. And then the Lord gave me two verses. Um, the first was James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. And then Psalm 27, 13 through 14. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. In my grief, God showed me how every day we are alive, we are given countless wonderful gifts for no other reason than that God is beautiful and the purity of his heart and character. That he is good and that he loves us. And all I had to do was to come and to see and to taste the goodness of God. And then I would live forever. I would be in the land of the living where I could be strong and confident like David that God is good, even though I am not. We're going to talk a lot this semester about some of the challenging things concerning who God is. But all of it makes sense. We need to remember this. All of it makes sense when we remember that whatever else God is, He is still good. And we can trust Him. So I want to close out by playing this song for you. In one of my favorite books, uh, The Horse and His Boy, part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, um, by C.S. Lewis, the main character grew up a slave boy. He was taken from Narnia as a child, and he was adopted by a man who treated him poorly his whole life. And so he, along with this horse, this talking horse, escaped servitude, and they made their way back to Narnia together. Along the way, he encounters Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus. And he finds out that the lion had been with him all the way through his journey from the very beginning. And the words of this song are beautiful and meaningful because this boy realized that this lion may not act like he would expect, but that he was truly, constantly good in his own life. As I play this song for you, I want you to think of the experiences in your own life that you had and the evidences that God has been good to you all this time. Cool. It's going to take me a second to give my guitar.
Have you ever come to see God's goodness for yourself? Have you tasted him for yourself? Or have you blamed him for things that have happened in your life? Have you trusted God to make you like himself and save you from all the evil in your heart? Because now is the time. Don't wait. Why would you wait if this is really true? If he's really like that, if he's really constantly good, why would you wait? Come and see. Come and see Jesus and taste for yourself that he really is good no matter what's happened to you in your whole life. Come and see that he really is good and realize that we are all poor and we need him and call out to him and he'll save you. He'll rescue you. I'm going to pray and we'll be done, but I want you to talk with your small group later after this, if this is you, and, and ask one of three questions. How do I come and see and taste him? How do I come and see and taste him? Two, how can I trust him to make him, make me like himself and to save me? And then the third one is, how can I forgive God for the things that I might have blamed him for? Cool. Jesus, we need you. Thank you that you're speaking to every heart through every hurt. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you allow us to come to you.